Well, welcome everybody. Hope you're having a good day. None of you are having a good day, okay? Well, it's a beautiful day outside, uh, in case you didn't know that. Well, this morning, uh, we will, as you might recall from uh, Fred's uh, reminder about our class, we want to get into that chapter 21, but we're at the point where I want to step back and do a couple of big picture things <clears throat> again. Um, one big picture thing we did was seeing the law as, in the ancient world, a suzerain vassal treaty. That's how it's set up between God, the suzerain, and his people, the vassals. But what is God setting up? Uh, how would we, how would we talk about that uh, in our kind of thinking about um, the way in which government are set up, the way in which people are governed, the responsibilities people have as citizens uh, of a kingdom? As you know, as we, we we look very carefully, I hope you can recall some of that. I tried to cite very precisely the terms that are now being used. Uh, God is looking upon the children of Israel as now a nation. And he calls them that, a uh, community of people, a, a nation, as they're leaving Egypt in slavery at Mount Sinai, which is in terms of the text of, uh, of Exodus is where we are. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is receiving the law from God. And so we could maybe put it this way using terms that we are familiar with, the law in terms of Israel, they are now a nation, a community of people. The law is their constitution. The law defines the obligations God has toward them and the obligations they have toward God. And so what Moses is really detailing, again, I'm going to use a word that we would use. It is not a word that's in the Bible, but it's, it's the right word. What God is establishing is a theocracy. I don't know if you are familiar with that term, but it's not hard to figure out. Uh, theocracy, that's from a Greek word, theos, which means God, and kratos, which is rule. So it's the rule of God. Please note, what God is setting up, there's no king. There's no legislature. God will rule them. And the intermediary, and I used the most important name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, and kind of what's been consistently used here. Uh, God, God directly rules them, but he rules them directly and indirectly through the Levitical priests and then the people. Now, I put it as an, an inverted arrowhead. I, my art is terrible, in case you don't recognize. That's like an inverted triangle or arrowhead or whatever you want to call it. But God, God is the ruler of this nation. There is no king. Now, they will eventually ask for and receive a king. And God even states in Deuteronomy 17, when you get a king, this is what the king is to do. So without getting into that, I probably shouldn't have brought that up. So all God is doing is he's establishing this theocratic rule where he is ruling them. Now, again, what is really important here is to remember what where they're ready to head into their land, what all the nations around them look like. There was no nation around them that had a structure like this. Many nations had priests, but they all had kings, the very powerful kings. We might call them today absolute monarchs. And so what God is doing here is something unique. No other nation on planet Earth could say this. No other nation on planet Earth 
would have had a structure like this. So this is kind of the structure of the, of the government, if you will, that God is setting up. And that's why I'm doing this now, because as we studied last, well, actually it took us almost three weeks, but as we work through Exodus chapter 20, you have now the moral law of the ruler, i.e. the moral law of God. And that, that is defining their relationship with him and their relationship with one another. So in other words, he's setting up, again, it is so different than anyone else around them, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, or Assyrians, or the Philistines, or uh, the, the Phoenicians. I'm just naming off names of civilizations around them. The moral law of God is a, is a law that reflects his character, and therefore, if I can put it this way, the ethical obligations they have as his people to one another and to him. <clears throat> you follow that sentence I just uttered? Does that sentence I just uttered make sense to you? So, I mean, God is, God is really doing something very radical here. He is not setting up a totalitarian dictatorship. He's setting up a benevolent rule of him over his chosen people to accomplish his covenantal promises, which eventually leads to the redemption of, of humanity, by a clear moral law that reflects his character and reflects how they are to relate to one another and how they are to relate to him. First four commandments, how you relate to him. Next, command, uh, 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 other commandments, uh, six commandments, are how you relate to one another based on ethical principles like the sanctity of life, the sanctity of property, the sanctity of truth, sanctity of authority, right? You're supposed to say right to that because that's how we right, cover right, it. Right, okay. Right. I, just, you, I know for you and me this is so familiar because generally in Sunday school or whatever, you study this to one degree or another. But I'm trying to get you to see how absolutely radical this was in the ancient world. And in my view, it's still radical. It's still a radical way to look at how people are to be governed and what their relationships are with one another. And you can put it this way, what their ethical obligations are to one another. So based on this, again, I, my, my, the way I draw things is sloppy, but his moral law then becomes the basis of the civil laws of the society. And that's what we're about to study now in chapter 22, 21 and following. We're going to go through this fairly quickly. I mean, because it really gets elaborate and, and minutia. But it's important because I want you to see, unlike any other civilization in the ancient world, what God is doing is he's saying, your ethical obligations to one another within this society that we're setting up is going to be based on justice. We are going to build a just society. We're going to build a society where there is personal accountability for what you do. Even if there's an accident you're involved in, you're still accountable. Even if you are fighting and you hit a, you know, you, you, two men are fighting and one of their wives is standing by side and you accidentally hurt her and caused her to miscarriage, you are accountable for that. And saying something again about what? One of those character traits of God that's reflected in his moral law, the infinite worth and value of life. Even prenatal life to God's important. 
I'm just saying because this no other society is is trying to build a civilization like this. It's because God's building it. And not only justice and accountability, but also restitution. Part of accountability means you are obligated to restore property that you've stolen, life that you've taken, injury that you've inflicted. So restitution. And that today, the, the, um, really the Western, whole Western system of justice, Western civilization, United States, Canada, is based on these three principles. It really is. Where did that come from? That's why, until recently, when our culture got more and more secularized, that's why when you, when you look at the study of law, when you look at the statues, when you look at the monuments to law in, in, the, in Western civilization, they always have the Ten Commandments. Why? Because the Ten Commandments, when you study law and you study as a discipline, you come to realize how absolutely radical the Ten Commandments are. They become the ethical basis for building a society of justice, accountability, and restitution. And then the last word that I've chosen to use is a civilization that also includes equity. Where there's a degree, it's not necessarily equality, yes, equality before the law, but equity, fairness. The very poor are treated the same as the very rich in terms of these basic standards of justice, accountability, and restitution. It doesn't matter where you are on the socioeconomic ladder. You're here. It doesn't matter what your wealth is or your lack of it is. You're here. And all of this applies to you regardless of where you are on the socioeconomic ladder. So I, I guess what I'm trying to do is get you to see, because this can get really... Um, hard to study because you just read some of these very obscure regulations. But I'm trying to get you to see what God is doing here is he is trying to set up a, a society and in really indeed a whole civilization based on some really radical and rather revolutionary laws that reflect his moral character, which is in, instituted in his moral law, the Ten Commandments which are then to reflect everything you see in society. It's one of the reasons why God says this in the Old Testament, several times in Leviticus, it's also said in the New Testament, be holy as I'm holy. Now, that, that, has, that has a lot to do. It has to do with the issue of sin and, and all of that that God takes care of. But even more importantly, holiness is a dimension of God's character. So I want everything you do to reflect my character. But can you also then understand why the farther a culture gets from all of this, the more dysfunctional, disoriented, and hurtful the culture is going to become? And I don't know if you've noticed that, but that's kind of where America is. We are getting, we are becoming so secularized that we don't have frameworks of how to deal with things. Um, David Brooks, I don't know if you know that name, he's a columnist who writes for the New York Times, but he's a, he's a very strong, conservative Jewish man. I love his writings. He is, uh, he's, to me, he's one of the most um, 
persuasive and penetrating columnist today. Every time he writes, I read. I've read his book, Road to Character, which I think is one of the best books on character out there. But a couple of weeks ago, he wrote an essay in which he talked about we are now in a society where we don't know what to do with guilt and sin. Because as we become more and more secularized, we handle guilt and sin through victimization. It's someone else's fault. It's some institution's fault. Something else is going wrong. It's not my fault. And so that victimization then leads to just disorientation and dysfunction. Because if no one assumes any personal responsibility for anything, then you're constantly, you're constantly in a situation where it's someone else's fault, and as, as the state picks up more and more responsibilities for raising children, dealing with all the, the major things that are a part of what God has already declared, we, we end up depending more and more on the state. And that entitlement mentality is fostered among everyone where you owe me something. I'm not responsible for anything, and you owe me something. <laughs> and I, I'm getting a little extreme, but he, he says that that's one of the real dangers of where we are as a civilization right now. We don't know how to, have, we don't know how to handle guilt. Because God has built us in such a way that is, we violate conscience, we violate the law in our heart, we will experience guilt. And you don't know how to deal with that. And so you get then the, the human being, and the Bible talks about this, your conscience becomes more and more hard, and you can end up rationalizing almost anything you do. Because ultimately you reach conclusion, this isn't my fault, it's someone else's fault. Or there's some gene that misfired. Or, you know what I mean? Instead of just taking what God is saying... This is the kind of civilization I'm going to build. And every time, everything I do, everything you do, and that's one of the, we're not going to get into a lot of that. Uh, we're going to kind of summarize that. But the dietary laws, you know, kosher, all that stuff, all of, all of the laws that deal with how you make your clothing, the laws that dealt with how you organize your daily work, how you treat animals, all that. God covers all that because God was saying the kind of society we're building where I am the role of theocracy. Everything you do, I want you to think of me. Because I created everything. I've chosen you. I've given everything to you. I'm giving you this land. And everything you do, I want you to think of me. Because I'm not a fair-weather friend. I'm your creator. I'm your sovereign. I'm your redeemer. I liberated you out of Egypt. I've given you all this, the land, etc. Now here's how I want you to live. So that everything you do... Everything you do, you are to do to my glory and to think of me in everything I've done because you owe everything to me. And that's not a self-serving deity. That's the truth. God is the creator. God's the redeemer. And we owe everything to God. And the problem of modern humanity is we don't want to, one, recognize God, either as creator or redeemer. We will argue we are autonomous. And we do everything on our own for our own glory and personal aggrandizement. So I'm getting a little bit beyond what Exodus is. But this is, and I hope I've been able to communicate this in a way that you really, you really get this. What we are studying here is something quite revolutionary in the ancient world. And it, it was a game changer. Now the question that 
that, that it just begs this question as you start this. How are the people of Israel going to live? Are they going to live like this? Well, one of the things you know from the rest of the Old Testament is some periods they do, and some periods they don't. And when they don't, things get all messed up, and God disciplines them. And then when they do, then God blesses them. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a, it gives you the framework for really understanding the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, Jim, don't you think that even though we've jaded ourselves, <clears throat> you know, we've uh, fel felon actors that go out and do things, that at the base of our creation is that sense that we are guilty. We, I mean, we do have guilt. We do have feelings, somehow responsibility, and it, it, um, that doesn't go away if God, if we're created in the image of God, would you say that that basic characteristics of our spiritual inside doesn't change even though the modern world has changed and it's changing? How have you thought on that? I mean, what's, what's well, it doesn't change. <laughs> I think what modern humanity has done and, and our and our technology, and Brooks even talks about that in that essay, our technology has empowered us to a great degree in a both positive sense, but also in a negative sense. And uh, it gives us a sense of power and uh, individual autonomous authority that we really don't deserve because we don't know how to handle it. We don't. We don't know how to handle it. You see, this, this thing that all of you have, this, this is a gift. This is a, this is a wonderful dimension of the technology in which we, the technological age in which we live. I mean, it's just fabulous. All of you have probably have one of these. I mean, what I can access them. I can access anything in the world on this dumb thing. But what can happen is this is either, and this is really, this is a really important point. This can either be a tool or it can be an idol. And I have to choose what it's going to be. I either will use this with discipline so that it serves me so that I can better serve the Lord, or it becomes an idol and I become so addicted and, and aligned and enslaved to it, that it begins to control me. Now, I don't think what I was just saying in the last two sentences is an abstract thought. This really can become an idol. And if you are ever around young adults or teenagers, and unfortunately, many adults, you see that. They're constantly texting. They're con I mean, they're, they're just in this... this this is the center of their life. And everything about it just determines what they do. And that's, that is always uh, one of Billy Graham's, when he found, founded the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, one of the members of his early board was a very wealthy man from Boston, one of those original blue blood families from, from Beacon Hill in Boston. And one inner, I was in Pollock's biography, I think, of, of Graham. He, he asked him, why did you get involved with us? And he shared his testimony. He said, well, you have, you have all this wealth. He said, my father taught me that our wealth is either a tool for the kingdom of God or it's an idol that we will serve. 
That is a very wise comment, isn't it? That is a very wise comment. And so it's that perspective that God wants the children of Israel to have this perspective by this, what I've been talking about, this perspective about him and what he is doing for them. And he's saying, if you follow this, I will bless you. I will bless your vineyards. I will bless your farms. I will bless your livestock. I, I will bless your children. I will bless you. But if you choose not to walk in obedience with me, then I will discipline you. And as you get further into the Old Testament, he says, I will even send you into exile, which is what he does for 70 years. Now, there's a lot, there are about four hands come up, so I'll start and go around. That's all right, Andrew, please. Um, I was just going to ask, um, with, with the obedience, disobedience, blessing, discipline with Israel, without getting into like performance or prosperity gospel, how should we think about that now? Do we think about it in the same senses? <laughs> No. Um, I'm trying to think of how I can answer your question without taking about 10 minutes to answer your question. There are two covenants. Uh, let me back up. When you think of Israel, when you think of the chosen people, when you think of the children of Israel, you always must keep in mind two covenants. Covenant number one is the Abrahamic covenant which is a unilateral, unconditional covenant God made with Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants. I will give you land, I'll give you people, numerous as the skies, stars of the sky, etc. And I, I will make you a blessing to all people, and you all the nations will be blessed. And no matter what they do, God says that covenant stands. The Mosaic covenant, which is what we're studying here, was the covenant that did not inform or determine their relationship as a nation with God or even their individual relationship with God. That's defined by the Abrahamic covenant, and that's a covenant of faith. You either believe that or you reject that. But if you believe that, then the Mosaic covenant is how you walk with me. This is how I'm going to deal with your sin. There's a system of sacrifices that will atone for your sin so you can walk with me, and all of that. So, Andrew... The, the reason I'm answering it that way, because this is how they are to walk with God. And if they do not do that, that means their sin is not being atoned for. They are, they are not growing in their dependence on him. They are growing in the opposite, in the rebellion against him. And because of the relationship of the Abrahamic covenant, they, he must discipline them. So now let's, let's take that to the New Testament. The unconditional covenant in which you are now engaging with God is the new covenant. It's what replaces the uh, Mosaic covenant. And, and what that means is God is saying to you, I've done it all. I've solved all your problems of sin and rebellion against me in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Put your faith in him. Now, how do I walk with you? I walk with you by the moral law of God. But he gives us an enablement and a power, the Holy Spirit, one another, and so on. But, Andrew, what if you choose not to do that? 
you're a child of God. You come into his family by faith in, in, in his son. But you say, I don't want to live this way. God, what will God do? He will discipline you. But if you are growing in your dependence on him, and here is where you have to be really careful because you use the phrase, you can cross into a prosperity theology, which is not taught in the scriptures. But you will experience the blessing of God as you walk and grow in dependence on him. Can that be material blessing? Yes. But it's not only that. It's the blessings of forgiveness from sin. It's the blessing of enslavement from my old habits and old patterns. God is slowly weaning us from all that. So I, that's a long answer to your question. But it really, it, it's really the only way to approach this with all 66 books of the Bible in mind. Did I... Absolutely. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. If I didn't, I wanted to ask a, a further question. But that is really, really, really important. And that's the mistake so many people make when they address these. There were some other hands somewhere. Uh, Rob? Do you believe the, 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 the theocracy of, of, of Moses, of the ancient Jews? The ancient Israel. Is mm-hmm. The only true theocracy in the world? Yes. Absolutely. There is no other theocracy. I do not accept Shiite Iran as a legitimate theocracy. They claim to be a theocracy. They're not. I was just wondering how much time transpired between the giving of the moral law and Saul's appearance. About 400 years. That must have radically changed all of this. It does, Jim. That's a great question, uh, great comment. It doesn't change any of this. What it changes is this. Once you have the monarchy, I won't write all that, but you have a monarchy. So you have God, then you have the king, but you have something else. You have the priests and the prophets. Then you have the people. These Still in a seat, but this, the prophets, that after the monarchy is formed, and you know, Saul is the first monarch, but he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a terrible monarch. And so he then fails, and David, the Davidic monarchy. And as that occurs, then you have a new addition to the governmental structure. It's no longer a theocracy. You have the king, and the pure monarchy is to be a Davidic king. That's the Davidic monarchy, which will lead to Jesus. But in in this, and this, can I really go forward now? What is really, really cool is that in Jesus, Jesus assumes all three roles. He's prophet, priest, and king. That's the book of Hebrews argues. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And so with Jesus, and when he returns in his second coming and sets up his his monarchy, it will be a theocracy, but a pure theocracy. And you and I will be cleansed of our problem forever because we'll get our resurrected, glorified bodies. Thank you for explaining that. Oh, sure. Well, that was a great question. But I mean, really, this is what... When you, that's why this, for me, this is also exciting to do all this, because you really see what God is doing. See, God sets us up, and what does he show to us in history? 
if you don't live with me at the center, it ain't going to work. And so we have 5,500 years of trying to do this without Christ, without the Lord. And as you think we might eventually get that doesn't work if we don't have God at the center, but we still keep trying. And the United States has gone from a civilization that recognized God needs to be at the center of what we're doing to now we don't want God. We don't even want God in the center. We don't even want God in the picture. <laughs> and so, I mean, if you know, we're just very naive and really downright dumb if we think we can build a civilization that's going to last without God. It's just not going to work. So, I mean, just to continue this question, I mean, can, can we individually sort of have a theocracy of how we live our, our lives, our families, and this sort of thing? Well, I think, yes, Jim, individually, that's really how we are to look at our lives. I am not Lord of my life. I'm not king of my life. Jesus is. Bill Bright used to do it this way. He used to draw a little... Can I use a fortune? He used to draw a little throne. That's a throne. Okay, it's a chair, but that's the throne. You have a choice in your life. You have a choice. Either Jesus is going to be on that throne of your life, or you are going to be on the throne of your life. You come to faith in Christ, you sort of have that settled, but every day you have to, you have to wake up and say, okay, who's going to run my life today? And so what Jim is saying is, is really right. The, the ideal for us and the goal that he's working us toward, it's step by step, that's the part of sanctification, step by step, is for us to learn every single day, you know, it is really, really wise for me to have an absolute theocracy in my life with Jesus on the throne. And he has his spirit inside of me, who is now reigning and ruling on the new temple of the living God. This is the best way to live. But we keep saying, oh, Jesus, I can handle this. I'll see you tomorrow, or maybe next week, I'll handle it from you know, and it it just generally speaking, it just doesn't work very well. So we keep coming back to it. And that's why when, when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom and so on. It's, it's not going to, his kingdom is not going to be a, mo, a, a democracy. It's not going to be a democratic public. He is going to be the benevolent, perfect, righteous king who is both prophet, priest, and king. And you and I will all have our glorified, resurrected bodies, and our rebellion against him will be over. Now, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth around here, but that's the kind of thing, that's where all this is headed. And God is just showing at every stage in human history, this is how I want you to live. In creation, conscience, my moral law, and in Jesus, I've revealed myself. You have to choice. And I'm just telling you, the best way to live is with me in the center of your life. But if you choose not to do that, I build into my world the consequences of choosing rebellion against me. Perhaps you answered, in fact, I think you talked about monarchies, but getting back to the Shiite, the, you know, Islam, Islamic uh, governments, where do they go wrong? They call themselves theocracy. Where, where is it that they go wrong? <clears throat> they went wrong in 620 A.D. when Muhammad showed up. I mean, that's, I, mean I, I don't know how to answer your question. It was just that 
a distorted view of God as Allah and so on, and then building all that over the years, it just, uh, it's very unfortunate. What, what's the difference then between a, that a monarchy that, you know, believes that God in, infuses the king with, you know, godly powers? I don't know, I'm, I'm not, my politics isn't that good, but... You know, well, I think the, 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 you know you have to die. The, the king has the divine right. Um, well, I think it's based on the Christian God, or some of them were, but they, they still were not true theocracy. Well, again, outside of of the theocracy that God built in Israel for a period of time, there has never been a successful democracy. Uh, uh, theocracy, it just it hasn't worked. And even during Europe's history, you had like you know, what they called the divine right of kings, these absolute monarchs, absolute, like Louis XIV in France, et cetera. Uh, they, those, those people were terrible rulers. They were absolutely terrible rulers. And they took Romans 13 and Daniel 4 and said, that applies to us, so obey us. If I want to tax you at a 95% tax rate, you must obey because I'm here for, God put me here. And if I want to draft all of your kids into my army and go fight England, et cetera, you have to do that because God put me here. And that, the divine, that's how they interpreted God in rhetoric. That's a prostitution of what God's really intending here. Because a king is supposed to, well, let me put it this way. The king of Israel, the king that God would, 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 would sanctify and bless, is a king. This is what's in Deuteronomy 17. And you see it when God instructs Solomon, this is how I want you to rule. Every day I want you to spend time in my law. Every day I want you to put it in your heart. And every day I want you to rule with justice, accountability, restitution, and equity. Build that into everything you do. And Solomon starts well, doesn't he? He's a wise king. He's trying to establish justice. And that very famous first legislative decision we have is the two women who claimed the child, the one that she, she rolled on her baby and he died. So she says, that's my baby. And the other said, no, that's my baby. Remember how Solomon decides it? That's wisdom. He's trying to do something that's equitable and fair and just. And you remember how that works out. And that's how the king is to rule. But that's what the tragedy of Solomon is. He, as he continued to rule, he got more and more of the taste of power, more and more of the taste of wealth. And unfortunately, until he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, which we did study in this class, where you see near Solomon in the end of his life, he repents of a lot of what he had done. I can't remember who told me this, but I love it. I use it every chance I can. With, with everything going on with politics, somebody, it seems like, invariably asks me, am I a Republican or a Democrat? I tell them I'm a monarchist. And... It's a wonderful way to share your, your faith, share your witness. That's it, that's right. Yep. And I, I assume as you explain it, my monarch is Jesus. Yes. Yep, yes. exactly. That's great. You, you sure get dumb looks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, that's great. Now, look, it's about 1230, and we have yet to read a verse in the Bible. So, I, But I really, wanted, I really wanted to lay all this out. Did, did What I've done here, does that make sense to you? If you followed me, then what we're about to study makes sense. So that's why I spent time doing it.
got a lot of good questions, so I'm assuming. All right, let's look at chapter 21 now. Some of this we're going to do a little bit of summarizing, but also some of it we're going to get into some detail. All right, and it's in your notes, too. You can follow it. But if you saw civil law, human relations, and government, that's on page 13. And I've just broken it into categories. The the first one is slaves or servants. Now, this, this bothers us in the 21st century. Because our society doesn't have slaves. In the ancient world, um, in the ancient world, the majority of people that lived in any kingdom were slaves. So what is God doing? That was the primary economic relationship of the ancient world. And so what God does is he says, this will be in your economic relationship. But I want you to I want you to have a system where there's justice, accountability, restitution, and equity, even in your economic relationships. And I today in the 21st century, well, why didn't God call for the end of slavery immediately in Egypt? I mean in Israel. Uh, well, I don't know if I can completely answer that, but in the ancient world. Labor was done by slaves, and slaves, a slave, when you think of slavery in the ancient world like this, don't think of chattel, racial slavery before the Civil War in the United States. It's not the same thing. A person could go in their, in their say, typically the person in the ancient world lived to be about 50, 45 to 50, that was the lifespan. So you could go in and out of slavery five or six times in your life. Why? Because a lot of things could happen to you. You, have, you. you borrow some money for some seed. You have two years of drought. You can't pay it back, so they put you in, in, as a slave. That's how it's paid off. Or somebody conquers your village, and all of a sudden you're now serving a foreign power as a slave. And see, what God is doing, God would have to, and well, maybe he should have, but Instead of reconstituting everything in the world, there is slavery. This is the pattern in the ancient world. So what I want you to do in Israel, I want you to practice that with justice, accountability, restitution. I'm going to regulate it. And I'm going to provide regular opportunities for people to be free. And I'm going to provide regular opportunities. If you do something wrong against them that violates my moral law, you're accountable for that, even if that person's a slave. You follow me? So, I mean, even as God is, and I'm getting a little animated here, but even as God is regulating this, he's doing something that is absolutely radical in the ancient world. Because what God is saying is it matters how you trade, treat your debtor slave. If somebody owes you money and they don't pay it, and you, you, you say, okay, then you have to work that off. It matters how you treat that person. Or if you go into a village and you take them, it's going to matter how you treat these people. Now, that's what God is doing. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying you anything. That's just, that's stunningly radical in the ancient world. God is immediately saying, I'm building into this system a method for freedom. It's a law. I want you to do that. If he comes 
He is to go free alone, but he has a wife. She's to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the women and the children shall belong to her master. Only the man shall go free. Now that bothers you, but it gives them an opportunity to be free, but down the road. Then, but if servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges and he shall take him to the door, the doorpost, pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. Now, again, that might bother you a little bit, but it could be someone, my master, the man I've served these six years has been so good to me, and it's so difficult for me to get out in society and find a meaningful job, I just want to serve him the rest of my life. So you are voluntarily agreeing to serve that person. And God is regulating it. You following me? You have a situation where you might have an entrepreneur who, who just doesn't make it. He's in debt and everything like that. So then he voluntarily goes to someone and they support him. I mean, he works for them and he has a steady income and everything. That's right. But it would be difficult to leave that and go out. I mean, where do you go to start up again? Especially in the ancient world. But it yes, that that it's that kind of obvious socioeconomic conditions of the ancient world, it, to, you, using the word you used, it would be very difficult to be a successful entrepreneur in the ancient world. So could you change from one master to another? Yes. You thought you'd get a better deal yes. Well, no, no, not necessarily. No. <laughs> only, if, only if that other master, there was some kind of economic obligation there, that he had helped you um, you know, get enough seed to plant next year's crop, and the crop is an absolute failure, real drought, or whatever it is, then how are you going to pay off that debt? To degree, if I use this phrase, slavery in the ancient was a little bit more like indentured servitude. Did you ever hear of that indentured servitude? You're just agreeing. You're agreeing to serve for a lot of different reasons. In, in early parts of America, the vast, vast majority of people that came in the early colonial years of America came as indentured servants. The vast majority. There were, we, have, we have got hundreds and hundreds of these, but it was a document. That person would give you free travel across the North Atlantic, feed you and so on, set you up, and you would agree to work for him for seven years without pay. But you have an agreement signed. Again, we found hundreds of these. And at the end of that seven years, then you are free. But until then, so you're not exactly a slave. You sort of are, but it's not like a slave that's property, that's racial, that'll last forever. It's, it's a seven year. But it's how I got from England to the American colonies. It's how I got set up. I brought my kids with me, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the, the price for that is I have to serve seven years without pay. And that, the vast majority of, of colonial Americans in those early couple of decades, came as indentured servants. That's wasn't how they got it. Was practical? It was, it was, yeah. I mean, it, was, it wasn't evil necessarily. It was just a practical, legal arrangement of how those colonies, because remember, the 13 colonies were all planted by British. It was Great Britain, part of the British Empire. And the problem is, how are we going to get people there? You know, you, you bring a bunch of people, because I don't know if you know anything, but traveling across the North Atlantic in the 1600s 
was not a real easy trip. That was really hard. I mean, I don't like to travel in the ocean anytime, even in nice cruise liners. I don't like that. So, you know, these little wooden ships were, anyway. I was on a bunny trail there. I can't remember if I got started or I'm done. Talking about ancient slavery, how different from like the challenge slavery for our country. It's so it's so different. It's so that's the pernicious nature of slavery in, in the American South. It, it was so evil, it was so pernicious and so monstrous. They were got as chattel and it was racial. And the justification was they're not humans, they're subhumans. Doesn't matter how we treat them. And Abraham Lincoln recognized that if you've read his second inaugural address. He said one of the reasons God sent the Civil War was to judge America for what they did. That's how Lincoln viewed it. Regardless of that, let's look at verse 7. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. Now, again, this is for you. If, if there were a woman in this class today, she would be repulsed by this. Again, not to justify it, but just to explain it. It's a very patriarchal society. And women, women in a typical Anywhere in the ancient world, all ancient world societies were patriarchal. A woman had absolutely no rights. There were no laws in any way protecting her. If she's married and her husband dies, she's done. Absolutely no, she can't inherit anything, she can't own anything. So what is God doing? If, if I have a, a man in my community that needs a servant, and he would like, now this does not mean sexual servant. That's not what this means. What I will do is I will, I will give her to that man, sell her to that man, but she can be redeemed. And that word, I hope all your translations translated that in verse 8. She can be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he's broken faith with her. Okay, what does that mean? If you know the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, Boaz redeemed Ruth. Because Ruth, Ruth's husband was a Moabite who died. And she comes back with her mother-in-law who is from Bethlehem. Ruth is a Moabite. She's not a Jew. But she's in that community. And she is the daughter-in-law of Naomi who is a Jew. And Boaz says, I want to redeem her. And so he pays a price to the elders of the city of Bethlehem, redeems her, frees her, and then marries her. Now, again, you and I, we don't even have, we don't have anything even close to that. It, it's kind of a, but what, what is God doing? God is regulating these social relationships in the ancient world so that it is, equitable, it's just, it matters how you, you see, he's just establishing procedures that guarantee a stability and order in these kinds of relationships. I mean, it's very hard for you and me to identify with this because we don't have anything like this, thank the Lord. 
All right, let me go in the remaining minutes. Let me go to verse 12, all right? This, this list, this itemizes a number of capital crimes for very personal injury. Anyone who strikes someone a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is done unintentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. That becomes what is known as the cities of refuge. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or still in the kidnapper's possession. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Boy, if 17 were applicable in the United States today, we'd be having rows and rows and rows of people going to... All right, now listen. Again, this, to a degree, you have to step back and think, okay, what is going on here? This is the moral law of God applied to a society. Where? Where do you learn respect and dignity and love for authority in your family? And if you curse your mother and father, you are showing disrespect for that. And the idea of the verb tense, this isn't just one time. This is a perpetual, continual, ongoing. And a capital crime is one who has a premeditated murder. Why is that so important to God? Why does it matter how you treat another human being? Because they're created in the image of God. They have worth. They have value to him. And you can't wantonly, either through a premeditated way, or you're in a fight and you kill that person. There's accountability. Exactly, it applies to everybody. And so, again, what is God saying? He's saying how you treat human life in the civilization we're building matters to me. And if you choose to treat it in a flippant, wanton way, there's accountability there. And even look, look at this one. Look at verse 18. If two people quarrel and one hits the other with a stone or with his fist, and the victim does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other gets up and walks around. But if the guilty party may pay the injured, but he must pay the injured party for any loss of time and see that the victim is completely healed. So you're in a fight and you really injure someone to where they're in bed for four weeks, what do you have to do? You have to provide compensation for them. It's not the government doing. It's not the social security system doing it. It's not, and I, I, I'm just, I don't mean to get political. That's not what I mean. It's just that you are responsible for it. You're accountable for it. And so it's building a society, a civilization where there's justice, where there's personal accountability. You are responsible for the decisions you make. You are responsible for the actions you take. Another way, he's, he's, he's putting some structure in their life. Absolutely. Not some structure, but he, a lot of structure. Yeah. This is the way it's going to be. This, it's like if you go back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, when God says it's good, or good, 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 remember I, what that Hebrew word means? That which produces order and that which is conducive to life. That's what God does. 
And so you, this is what is really hard in America today because we don't like institutions, we don't like structure, we don't like order. And God is saying, okay, you like disorder and chaos, and that's what you're going to get, disorder and chaos. And prior to that, <clears throat> slave owners in, say, Egypt with the Israelites, or, they could do whatever they wanted. I mean, they could give one to somebody else or kill one or whatever. That's what I mean. It, it, God is regulating an institution that eventually will be abolished, but he's, re he's regulating the institution. And, I mean, um, that is conducive to order, and it's conducive to life. I don't know how you men are, but, I mean, I know my, how I am, and I see it with my children. I function best when there's structure and order in my life. Maybe you don't agree with me, but I really do. Accountability. Well, it's it's all that it's all that stuff that's built into it, <laughs> because that's I believe this with all that's how God made us. But if we push back on that and don't want to live like that, then we won't be as productive. We won't be as efficient. We, you know, and it, it's just this is the way God wired us. This is the way God made us, and He's telling us in a society. See. If God, if God is right, and I obviously think he is, then he's telling us how he wants us to live our life. I have your best interests at heart. I created you. I redeemed you. Now back to Bill Bright's little thing that Jim raised. If Jesus is the monarch in your life, then he knows what's best for you. And as we immerse ourselves in the Word of God and we get closer and closer and more and more dependent on Him, we realize He is right. He does have my best interest at heart. And that's, uh, that's it's so refreshing to approach life in that way. But sometimes it takes a while for us to get there. Can I do one more thing before we're done? Verse 20 Anyone who beats their male or slave or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers in a day or two since the slave's their property. <laughs> but there is abuse is not permissible. Discipline is hard. One more thing, look at verse 22. If people are fighting and the pregnant woman is hit and gives birth prematurely, you could translate that or has a miscarriage, but there's no serious injury. The offender must be fined, whatever the woman's husband demands in the court allows. But if there's serious injury, you're a take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. This is called the law of retribution. It's called the law of retribution. It is the basis for justice. The basis for justice in God's economy is the law of retribution. In Latin, it's called lex talionis. Talionic justice. And it's summarized by an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You're accountable. You're accountable. 
And restitution, retribution is built into the law. That's justice. And so the Lord is beginning to, to lay that down here in, in, this, in this verse 24 is like a summary of this. Even, even if you don't intend it, you cause a woman to miscarry their accountability there. So what does that tell us, if I conclude, conclude with this, what does that tell us about God's view of prenatal life? It's important to him. If it were just a bunch of unimportant cells, just a mass of cells, that's not how God's saying it. It matters. And I'm not trying to get into the abortion debate or anything like that. It's just it's really, it's really important to the Lord. And he wants his people to have his perspective about life as well. And so he builds into the system of justice, that principle. All right, now next week we'll um, cover a couple more of these things. There's some laws of property. There's some law about some of the social regulations. Then we're going to take a little break in the, in the text. And it goes back to what's going on with the children of Israel. Moses is up in Mount Sinai. And if you know what happened, if you've seen the Ten Commandments movie, you know what happened. If you haven't read the scriptures recently. So we'll, we'll deal with that, and then we'll come back, and we're going to talk about the tabernacle and so on. Some of that we're going to really skip over. We're not going to read every single detail about that, but I want you to get a big picture. So we're making progress. I hope what we did today made sense and uh, put some context to all of this. All right, we want to remember Ed's family, so let me uh, pray here. Lord, thank you for our time. We see in even these passages that can be difficult to read, if we keep the big picture of what you're really trying to do, you are insisting that the children of Israel, who now have your moral law, who now have a relationship with you based on faith, the unconditional Abrahamic covenant establishes the relationship. The Mosaic covenant establishes how they're to walk with you. And you have obligations, but you're framing a civilization based on justice, a civilization that's based on personal responsibility and accountability, a system of justice that's based on equity and restitution. Humans are accountable for every action that they engage in, you built that into the system that you were setting up with Israel. And Lord, that is what our society needs today, personal accountability and personal responsibility. Victimization is not an option. We are accountable for the decisions we make. Lord, that's what helps develop mature, wise people. And if we do away with that, we are producing generations of victims who blame others or blame institutions for decisions they make. And that's what creates disorder and dysfunction. Oh Lord, be merciful to us. As a nation and as a civilization, help us get back to that. And as I think it was Jim who said, in our own personal lives and our families, may we model and may we follow you as our monarch, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. We want to walk tightly with you, hand in hand through life. And we thank you that you want us to do that, and you make it possible for us to do that. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus, who made all of this possible for us. In his name we pray. Amen. See you next week.